Well, it is a real treat to be back here to see a lot of new faces and some old faces, but not just because you're old. Uh, it's faces that I knew before. Uh, it's good. And man, y'all sing so good. Uh, you don't know how many churches would give their right arm to have this, this choir, the way you, you folks sing. It's just, and, uh, I had to remember, uh, when we started It Is Well With My Soul. Uh, a few years back, my uh, oldest brother had a son, Barrett. Uh, Barrett was 32, uh, knew the Lord, and uh, was suddenly stricken with stomach cancer. Uh, we were in the hospital the night he passed, and his favorite hymn was uh, It Is Well With My Soul. And as we were playing that third verse, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, he stepped into glory, Uh, an extraordinary moment, a privilege to be around some of the saints when they pass. None of this counts against my time, by the way. This is all introduction. I'm about to do what my daughter calls the most meaningless uh, act in the whole cosmos, which is start a timer. Um, But you have no idea how long I've set it for. So we'll we'll just play a little game here. Um, I had a gal in my church by the name of Beulah Sack. And Beulah was um, in her 90s. And she was just... A prayer warrior, just an incredible, this had nothing to do with a sermon, so just bear with me. Um, but just an incredible woman. I, I loved her to death, and she was such an encourager. And uh, she had finally ended up in a nursing home and was uh, on her last hours. And they called me up to spend some time with her, and I was there with my wife and uh, her niece, her granddaughter, and, his, and her husband. And... Uh, we're sitting around, and, and Beulah's kind of in and out of consciousness. And so we're sitting around the bed, and we're talking and praying and singing and doing all those things. And all of a sudden, uh, Beulah's, her eyes are closed shut, but a big smile comes across her face. And I said, Beulah, can you hear us? And she nodded her head, yes. And I said, why are you smiling so much? That's weird. She opened her eyes and she looked at me and she goes, Jesus told me a joke. I said, Jesus told you a joke. She said, yeah. And I said, what was it? I mean, you can't let it go there. And she said, I'm not allowed to tell you. And two minutes later, she stepped into glory. Just one of those extraordinary moments. You never know what the Lord is doing. Proverbs chapter 3, if you'd open your Bibles with me. I'm just going to read the first eight verses. My son, do not forget my law, but let your heart keep my commands. For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Let not mercy and truth forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. And so find favor and high esteem in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, 
and he shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again just for the privilege of being with the saints and of worshiping together. Thank you for the opportunity to be particularly here back at CBC and for the joy that it is to my heart and to be with my dear brother Kyle in this particular time. But the privilege of opening your word and knowing that it speaks to us always, this is your voice. And I pray that that's what we'll hear this morning, your voice, not mine, but your spirit opening your word to us by your grace. Be pleased to visit us that way, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, The Bible has a lot to say about how we think as well as about what we think. We sometimes approach the Bible only in terms of data. And it has data that we need to know. But it moves beyond that. Uh, so you read a passage like Ephesians 4.23 that, that we're to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. Or Romans 12.2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of your mind. That we're to think differently than the world thinks. Uh, we can be preoccupied with just the information and not enough with how to think according to God's understanding of the universe. Uh, that kind of thinking is what the Bible calls wisdom. Enter the book of Proverbs. One of my favorite theologians, William G.T. Shedd, wrote this, quote, The book of Proverbs is the best of all manuals for the formation of a well-balanced mind. The object of Solomon in composing it seems to have been to furnish the church a summary of rules and maxims by which the Christian character, having been originated by regeneration, should then be educated and made symmetrical. Close quote. It's a wonderful concept. It helps you think differently. And it's one reason I've become a self-confessed Proverbs addict. I've spent a lot of time. I, I, I preached through the entire book of Proverbs a number of years ago. It is not a task for the faint of heart. I'm not sure I would do it again. But I gained so much just in reading it over and over. Again, not so much in the data, but in the way it began to affect the way I think, the way I see all things. Now, if you've, if you've never had a godly dad, or even if you have, Proverbs is like God as your father sitting down and personally mentoring you. It's a wonderful place to go. And and to help you begin to think the way he thinks. But there is a problem with all of that. Uh, It's something theologians refer to as the noetic effects of the fall. If you don't know that word noetic, it simply is a, a Greek word that has something to do with the mind. Um, it comes from, from the Greek that says the mind. And the truth is that the fall has affected our thinking as well as the other aspects of our lives. Uh, Al Mohler, for instance, lists 14 different ways 
that the noetic effects of the fall impact us. Let me give you just a few of those. The first he lists is ignorance. The fall has clouded our ability to see things the way they really are, the way God sees them. A second one that he brings up is distractedness. He puts it this way, that every single human being has theological attention deficit disorder. Uh, I know that's me. Uh, that, that definitely spells out where I am. Forgetfulness is a third, especially of spiritual and scriptural truth. We don't keep even central biblical truths static in our thought process at all times. We don't live there. And the older I get, the closer I get to fossilization. I don't know about anybody else here, but my my yellow sticky notes don't have too much sticky anymore. Um, I can write stuff on them and I put them up here, but they fall off pretty quickly. And, and, and lastly, he mentions partial knowledge. We only know in part, and sometimes we don't even know how partial our knowledge is. So this is all doing to the fall and the, the impact that it's had on us. And it's why we need to immerse ourselves over and over and over in the same truths in Scripture. We can't just let them go by. It's why Scripture memorization is so important. Because we don't for whatever reason, retain spiritual truth the way we should. Kyle and I were talking last night about uh, the books that we've read, and we're both readers, we enjoy books. I don't remember a tenth of what I've read, I don't think. Now, it's in there somewhere, but I have no retrieval process anymore. But So I've got to go back and rehearse those things again and again and again. Seems I need to do it every time I get in the car and forget what the speed limit is. Um, that, that's a problem. So as we come to Proverbs 3 in understanding where it fits within the context of Scripture, it is Solomon's third and perhaps his longest and most complex uh, conversation that he has with his son. I would really love to treat the chapter as a whole. It breaks down very neatly into five segments, but I'm just going to focus on two verses this morning, verses 5 and 6. But before that, by way of context, we should note that this chapter, as well as several others, are specifically aimed at Solomon preparing his son to take the throne. This is good for us because one day we're going to rule and reign with Christ. So we need to know something of, of what he's after here. There's an application for us. He wants his son to be successful. He wants him to be godly. He wants him to be a good and a wise leader. But he also knows this, that his son is going to face all kinds of trials and tribulations and confusing and complex circumstances that he is not already equipped for. Well, Welcome to life. This is you and me. It's what makes this portion so applicable to us. Let's face it, life can throw us curves. I don't care who we are. Stability sometimes in life is difficult even for Christians. With all the truth we know, the foundations can shake at times. We get hurt. We suffer loss. Disappointment comes. Loved ones die. A few years ago, as I was getting ready to preach a funeral, I did not want to preach 
My sister reminded me that in the previous three years we had lost 19 family members. That's, that's where we are. It happens. Some close to us remain far from Christ still. Maybe for you a particular sin continues to rise up after time. You think it's been put away and then it, it tries to reclaim its position in your life again. The world around us, let's face it, is chaotic. Uh, our, our society is nuts. And it can be very disconcerting in the process. Even those that we love and respect in the church can fail us. And at times, wisdom just escapes us. Sadness surrounds us. Joy eludes us. Seasons of, of dryness and distance from God frighten us and unnerve us. And, and so the question is, what are we supposed to do with all of this? And I don't know about you, but I know I have sometimes said things that are just a little too trite and not very well informed. Things like just, you know, hang in there, hold tight, uh, grin and bear it, praise the Lord in all things. These are all true, but they aren't exactly counsel. They're not the things that our souls need in the deepest moments. Things that that we hear, but... When you're the one who's suffering, those things can bounce off you like, like they mean nothing. I, I, I know any number of you have been there at times. So how do we remain stable and balanced in times like that? Where do we go for safety and for rest? Well, of course, we come back to the Bible. We come back to the Word of God. That's, that's for sure. And, and his word is replete with counsel in all sorts of places, under all sorts of circumstances, with all sorts of, of people as it's examined throughout the scripture. And he gives us profound counsel, a, a strong tower to run into, a place of ultimate safety for the heart and the mind. So if you're a weary or discouraged or confused Christian I want to say to you, God is speaking to you today in this portion. Give his voice a chance to sink in. Drink in what he says. He, he wants you to know that there's help. Not milk-sappy sentiments. Not empty platitudes, but real, solid, soul-sustaining, God-prepared provision. Help when there is none to be found in all the counsel and the kind words and prayers and well-meaning affirmations that everybody can give us. Now, these two verses that I want to look at, five and six, break down into four thoughts. They're evident. I don't have to do any great preparation here. You start off with a word of exhortation, which is trust in the Lord with all your heart. And then a word of warning do not lean on your own understanding. A word of counsel. In all your ways, acknowledge him. And then a word of promise, and he shall direct your paths. So I want to start off with this word of exhortation to trust in the Lord with all your heart, or what I've subtitled, trusting in the trustworthy one. And let me give you a warning right now. This is a personal warning to help you out. This first point's going to be really long. 
So if you think, oh man, by the time he gets to point two, three, and four, we should have already passed lunch. No, it's okay. I'm going to make those last three considerably shorter. So don't panic, okay? Give you a little bit of a warning. Don't panic. The first one's going to be long, but it's necessary. I want to develop two things out of this phrase. And the first thing that you want to notice is that we're being asked to trust someone, not simply have blind faith or trust. We live in a world, and often in churches, where we're supposed to just have faith in faith. Just believe. That's not sufficient. Uh, the, the passage here is trust in the Lord with all your heart. It is an individual I am to be trusting. It's, it's the very point of saving faith, isn't it? Uh, we have to remain in that same place all the days of our lives. We never move past the cross, past trusting Christ. So it's not some naked religious optimism. That's not what's going on here. It's a personal trust in the person and the work and the character of Jesus Christ on Calvary. Trust in who he is. Trust in his atoning sacrifice for sin, as we heard in Sunday school. Trust in his word and his promises. As John wrote in 1 John 1.5, quote, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. He, I can trust him. He remains pure and visible. And he isn't hiding anything from us in that way. He reveals himself in truth so that we can, we can really trust him. I want to give a word of caution here before we get into the one that's in the text. This will strike maybe some of you. You can believe every word of the Bible is true and still perish in a Christless eternity. James says, you believe that there is one God? Well, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You can say, I give mental assent to the truth of everything in the scripture, but still not have actually put your trust in Jesus Christ as your sin bearer. You can acknowledge all the truth and still not be saved. Years ago, we had uh, Jerry Bridges at our church. You may have read some of his books, just a wonderful man of God, and uh, he had been involved in campus ministry for uh, almost 60 years at that point. He was in his 80s. And I, I asked him, I said, what is the, the biggest change you've seen in college campus evangelism over the number of years you've been doing that ministry? And he said, well, we've had to stop asking people whether or not they are Christians or believers because that doesn't say anything to them anymore. We have to ask them, is Jesus Christ your sin bearer? Because they don't connect. They're just a Christian by, that's their religion of choice. And that doesn't work. You've got to take them deeper than that. And it's still the question for every one of us that's here this morning. Is Jesus your sin bearer? You need to answer that question. And if you can't answer that in all honesty and reality, you're not a Christian. No matter what your profession is. So it's, it's meant to take us beyond just 
mirror externals. And if that's the case, the rest of this passage is of no use to you yet. I pray it will be of use to you before the day is out. We want to see that happen. But personal trust in the person and the cross work of Jesus Christ. Nothing else is saving faith. We must trust the Lord with all our hearts. But again, we're being asked to trust someone and not simply have blind faith or trust. But secondly, implicit in this exhortation, in this opening portion, is that we need to know the one we're being asked to trust. You can't really trust somebody you don't know. You've got to know him, know what he is, which is where I'm going to spend most of my time this morning. Our trust has to be in the Christ of the Bible and not in an imaginary or fake one or one of our own imagination. If you were to need an operation, you want a real surgeon to do it. You don't want one who plays a surgeon on TV. You want something a little more solid than that. It's vital that we put our trust in the real Christ as he's presented in the Scripture. The Jesus of the Bible and not one fabricated by false religions or, again, even something we may have dreamt up in our own imaginations. Just for instance, I live eight miles from Hill Cumorah, where supposedly Joseph Smith dug up the golden tablets and began the whole Mormon faith system. It's not a faith. It's just a belief system. But but that that Jesus of Mormonism is the spirit brother of Satan and was a man who became a God even as God the Father became a God but started off as a man. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. There's the there's the uh, the Jesus of the Jehovah's Witnesses who is an angel but he's not God. He's a secondary kind of divine being. Or the Jesus of Christian science, who's, who's just a man who demonstrated what they call the Christ ideal. There's the, the Jesus of Scientology, who Jesus was just a human teacher who fully realized his potential. Or the Jesus of Islam. Uh, just as my wife and I were taking an Uber in from the airport, uh, we asked our driver where he was from. And, and as we probed, we found out that he was a Muslim. And, uh, and so I said, well, tell me what you believe of Issa, because Issa is in the Quran. They believe in Jesus. And as he talked about uh, Issa just being a prophet, but Mohammed being the prophet that succeeded him, we had an opportunity to say, Do you know anything of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, because of Christ alone? And he'd never heard it in his whole life. The old Puritan John Owen wrote that, quote, The ancient Christians told others the truth, namely that as they had feigned unto themselves an imaginary Christ, so they should have an imaginary salvation only. Close quote. The one we're to trust in with all our hearts must be the Lord Jesus Christ of the Bible if we're to have true salvation and if we're to find true help in our time of need. Running to the wrong Jesus is about as helpful as as getting the time from a watch tattoo on your wrist. Uh, Might be right twice a day, but that's it. It's, It's done the rest of the time. It's useless. It may have the appearance of the real, but it's a fake. The Jesus we need is the, is the Jesus of the Bible 
And he is magnificent. He's not just nice religious Jesus. He is astounding. He's stupendous. He's beyond comprehension. I'm going to read you a couple long quotes here. Bear with me. They're really worth it. In J.C. Ryle's incomparable book, Holiness, its nature, hindrances, difficulties, and roots, he writes this observation. It would be well if professing Christians in modern days studied the four Gospels more than they do. No doubt all Scripture is profitable. It's not wise to exalt one part of the Bible at the expense of another But I think it would be good for some who are very familiar with the epistles if they knew a little more about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I say it because I want professing Christians to know more about Christ. It's well to be acquainted with all the doctrines and principles of Christianity. It's better to be acquainted with Christ himself. It's well to be familiar with faith and grace and justification and sanctification. They're all matters that pertain to the king. But it is far better to be familiar with Jesus himself. To see the king's own face. To behold his beauty. This is one secret of eminent holiness. He that would be conformed to Christ's image and become a Christ-like man must be constantly studying Christ himself. Man, this is good. See, I didn't have to write a sermon. I'm just going to quote you a bunch of stuff. Now, the Gospels were written, he goes on, to make us acquainted with Christ. The Holy Ghost has told us the story of his life and his death, his sayings and his doings four times over. Four different inspired hands have drawn the picture of the Savior. His ways, his manners, his feelings, his wisdom, his grace, his patience, his love, his power are graciously unfolded to us by four different witnesses. Ought not the sheep to be familiar with the shepherd? Ought not the patient to be familiar with the physician? Ought not the bride to be familiar with the bridegroom? Ought not the sinner to be familiar with the Savior? Beyond doubt, it ought to be so. The Gospels were written to make men familiar with Christ, and therefore I wish men to study the Gospels. Close quote. Do we really know him? There's that famous sermon that was uh, a meme a few years ago on YouTube. It went viral everywhere by the old uh, preacher, S.M. Lockridge. Do you know him? I don't, not do you know about him, do you know him? Is he real to your soul in all of his glory and not just by name? Spurgeon preached, quote, depend upon it. There are countless holy influences which flow from the habitual maintenance of great thoughts of God. As there are incalculable mischiefs which flow from our small thoughts of him. The root of all false theology is belittling God, and the essence of all true divinity is greatening God, magnifying Him, and enlarging our conceptions of His majesty and His glory to the utmost degree. But you know, when we're in trouble, when we're in trial, here, here, I've I've got a small object here. It's my car key. Now, when I'm looking at my trial... Like this, I can't see anything else. When I hold it out here, I can see everything. It's, now, the trial hasn't changed a bit. 
It's the same size it always was. But when I'm only focusing on that, it obscures my vision of everything else. Instead, when I focus on Christ, he enables me to see the whole panoply and puts my trial in a particular context, draws it down to its its rightful size. It's for this reason that I've grown to love another Puritan writer by the name of John Flavel. And again, this is a long quote, but it's the last of the real long quotes I'll read you, but it's so good, I just had to throw it in here. Listen to how he writes of the biblical Christ. He says, quote, It is a special consideration to enhance the love of God in giving Christ, that in giving him, he gave the richest jewel in his cabinet, a mercy of the greatest worthy, and most inestimable value. Heaven itself is not so valuable and precious as Christ is. He's the better half of heaven. And so the saints account him in Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but thee? Ten thousand worlds, says one. As many worlds as angels can number, and then as a new world of angels can multiply, would not all be the bulk of a balance to weigh Christ's excellency, love, and sweetness. Oh, what a fair one. What a holy one. What an excellent, lovely, ravishing one is Christ. Put the beauty of 10,000 paradises like the Garden of Eden into one. Put all trees, all flowers, all smells, all colors, all tastes, all joys, all sweetness, all loveliness in one. And what a fair and excellent thing that would be. And yet it should be less to that fair and dearest loved, beloved Christ than one drop of rain to the whole seas, rivers, lakes, and fountains of 10,000 earths. Christ is heaven's wonder and earth's wonder. And now, for God to bestow the mercy of mercies, the most precious thing in heaven or earth, upon poor sinners, and great, as lovely, as excellent as his Son is, yet not to account him too good to bestow on us, What manner of love is this? I don't know about you, but I don't live there. And I should. What a different life we would live if we were caught up in those things all the time. In trouble and trial and tribulation, we need a glorious, stupendous, magnificent Christ as he is the Christ of the Bible. One of the guys I'm really anxious to meet in heaven, uh, there's a few people I'm sure I'll be shocked are there. Uh, maybe a few people that I'll be surprised aren't there. I don't know. But, but one of the guys I want to meet in heaven is Nebuchadnezzar. I love the fourth chapter of Daniel where God deals with him so fully. And then you get down near the end of that chapter and it's Nebuchadnezzar uh, exclaiming what he had been through. And he goes now... At the end of time, this is verse 34, at the end of time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me and I blessed the Most High. 
and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion. And his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Close quote. Man. See what had happened to him. He was before was caught up with his own kingdom. And now he says, man, that's drivel. I've seen God. I've seen his glory. It's, all this is, is nothing. This great Babylon that I have built is, is nothing. This is the Lord we're being ex- exhorted to trust here in this first verse. You'll not read Christ exalting words like this in any other religion or cult, and you would certainly never invent them yourself. But this, beloved, is the Jesus of the Bible. This is why you can trust him with your salvation, trust him in all of his promises, and that and that the rewards of Christ are greater than any pleasure of sin. Trust Him in His holiness. Trust Him in His faithfulness. Trust Him in His power. Trust Him in His goodness and His grace and His mercy and His love. Trust the Lord, as the text says, with all your heart. Trust Him as good and as eternal and as one with the Father. Trust Him. He rules over all. And you can trust Him. If you're not a Christian here today, and in any crowd this size... I dare to say there may be some here who have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. This is the one you must trust in order to be saved from the wrath of God and from your sin. This is the Christ we preach to you. We want you to know Him. We want you to know Him in His saving power. We want you to know Him in the wonder and glory of who He really is. For there's salvation in no other name but this name. And believer, there's no one else that you can absolutely trust with every care and every burden and every need and every concern and trial. Psalm 112 puts it so well. Surely he will never be shaken. The righteous will be in everlasting remembrance. He will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid until he sees his desire upon his enemies. Beloved, this is just so vastly important and practical. Uh, Give me a minute to just belabor this a bit more. And as I said, I'll, I'll try and make these remaining points very, very short because everything hangs on this. I, I was listening to our, our one brother from a couple of weeks ago preaching on Haggai and, and he mentioned the vision of, of, uh, that John saw at the beginning of the book of Revelation. And you'll remember it in chapter one. John says, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega. The first and the last. And, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. And then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. He was clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. 
and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace. And his voice is the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me and saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and of death. So write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. Notice this. John was the the disciple who had rested his head on Jesus' bosom in the upper room. But now he sees him in his resurrected glory and he falls like a dead man. He didn't know who he was dealing with earlier. Oh, he had an idea. He had a peak. But now, all of a sudden, he is confronted with this. It is a soul-shattering image of the risen Christ. And you look at these things that he says. He saw Jesus in a, a long robe down to his feet with a golden sash or a band around his chest. For John, this would have spoken volumes in his day. He would have clearly understood the imagery here. Long robes with sashes like that were indicative of three things that John would have been very familiar with. First, it would have been, he would have been familiar with the fact that such a presentation speaks of royalty. Royalty wore long robes with sashes that showed their high standing. And so twice more in this book, he's going to refer to Jesus as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He's going to refer back to his, his royalty. But secondly, robes like that spoke of authority. In the Roman army, and here was John on Patmos because he was in exile preaching the gospel from Rome. They're the ones who had exiled him there. In the Roman army, the longer the robe, the higher the rank. Jesus' robe goes all the way to his feet. He is the highest in rank of all authority. And then lastly, the robe and the sash combination would be particularly reminiscent of the high priest in the Old Testament. He would have identified with that. And so here Jesus is being pictured as our great high priest. His kingship and his authority over the whole cosmos and high priest to his church. Christ, the royal, supremely authoritative high priest over all. He's caught. And then... He sees that the hairs of his head were white like like mine. Well, maybe even whiter. They were really, really white. And that indicates Christ's eternality. He was as much the Ancient of Days as the Father. Together, they have always been. He's not less God. Not less than God. He's not some newcomer, but he too is the Ancient of Days. Before Abraham was, I am, he'll declare in John chapter 8. And third, he saw that his eyes were like a flame of fire. It signifies his omniscience. He doesn't need any outside source to give him light. He perceives from his his own light and he knows all from it. And it's flaming and piercing and powerful and, and all-searching. As Hebrews 4 says, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And fourth, he saw that Jesus' feet were like burnished bronze, 
refined in a furnace. It's a bracing symbol of his holiness and his moral purity. Historical uh, sources tell us that burnished bronze like this or burnished brass was considered more valuable than gold in John's day. He's really getting the picture. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. I live 65 miles from Niagara Falls. I don't know if you all have ever been there. But you hear Niagara Falls from miles away. And when you get up close to it, it is deafening. It's all pervasive. The sound goes through your body and goes out. And he says, this is the nature of, of Christ's voice. It, it sounds out through the universe. It's, it's all pervasive because he upholds all things by the word of his power. And he saw in his right hand that he held the seven stars. And he, he says, I know that Christ has personal guardianship of his church and everyone in it. And from his mouth came that sharp two-edged sword because he's the, the judge of all. And judgment is rendered at his word and it, it cuts both ways. It's unsparing and it's sure. One can't help think but of Jesus' words in John 12 where he said, The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Astounding. And then his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Christ as the outshining of God's glory. So glorious so overwhelming that he couldn't be directly looked upon. John had to fall on his face. It should bring us back to the memory of what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6 when he saw the Lord high and lifted up and, and, and sitting on his throne in the temple and, and just the hem of his garment filled the temple and those angels in antiphonal chant shouting, Holy, Holy, Holy Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Now it's in the context of this overpowering vision of the resurrected Christ that Jesus then tells John, so write this down. Write it down. Based on what you've just seen, write. Don't keep this to yourself. Let others know what it is like to encounter me in all my unveiled glory. And it's staggering. Is that your Christ today? Is he staggering? Or is something else more staggering than him? This is the Christ we're to stand before and who holds us now in every trial, in every tribulation, in every circumstance. Let's move on to the word of warning. It's short. The word of warning is to lean not on your own understanding because truth and our perception don't always go hand in hand. I mentioned earlier the noetic effects of the fall and the truth is our understanding of any situation is always limited. But according to Isaiah 46, he declares the end from the beginning. There's nothing hidden from his view. Our understanding is often defective, but his is perfect. First uh, Corinthians says, right now we see through a glass darkly, but he doesn't have that problem. And our understanding is ours, not his. It's centered in ourself. It only comes out from our perspective. But as Isaiah says, uh, when God declares to him, my thoughts aren't your thoughts, my ways aren't your ways. Uh, 
They're, they're, my thoughts and, and ways are higher than, than the heaven is above the earth. So, trust me. I, I know what I'm doing. We're not even to lean on our own understanding when it comes to some of the hard things to be understood in His Word. Might I add here that it's important not to, when you're going through trial and tribulation, not to over-scrutinize your circumstances as though we live in a tit-for-tat universe? We don't. Not everything can be tied together in an immediate cause-and-effect relationship. It doesn't work that way. Don't lean on your own understanding, but believe His Word, even where it's hard. I'm reminded of that great anonymous poem. When God wants to drill a man, and thrill a man, and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him, and with mighty blows converts him into trial shapes of clay which only God understands, while his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses and with every purpose fuses him by every act induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he's about. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Which brings us to the word of counsel. So in all your ways, acknowledge him. Live totally before him. I'll do this in four simple steps. See everything in him. That he he is Lord of the universe, even the sparrows, even the hairs on your head are numbered. And for some of us, that's a bigger miracle than others. But it's still a miracle. Even the hairs on your See everything in him. Secondly, confess everything to him. Every doubt, every fear, every failure, every sin, every wrong attitude, every grief, every shame... God is not shocked. Back in the days when the, the, the Britain was at its height, they used to say that the sun never sets on the British Isles because they had, had conquered so many foreign lands. Abraham Lincoln was reported to have said that's because God can't trust them alone in the dark. I don't know that that's true. But, but nevertheless, God never wakes up in the morning shocked that you did something overnight that he wasn't anticipating. He's never thrown by your sin. He's, he, he's never caught off guard. He knew every sin you would ever commit before He ever created the universe. And He still saved you. You think He's going to give up now? You don't know your God. Third, lay everything before Him. Commit your way to Him. Cast it all on Him. And lastly, cast your whole confidence upon Him. Which brings us to our fourth phrase. And that is the word of promise. And He shall direct your paths. So, follow the pattern. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him. 
and he shall direct your paths. And just take the phrase apart, will you? First, he shall direct your paths. They won't just happen on their own. God is invested in your life. He's leading. He's directing. By his providence, he is moving you along. And sometimes I don't like where providence takes me. It's okay. Jesus told that to Peter. Someday they're going to take you where you don't want to go. That's all right. He's still Lord. So he, not it, God himself promises to direct your steps. Secondly, he shall. Not he can, not he might, not maybe, he shall. It's a guarantee. He will, he shall direct your paths. Third, he shall direct your paths. He doesn't just watch. He doesn't let us trip and fall into stuff uh, at, at some disinterested distance. No, he directs our paths. He actually performs. He's working in our lives and and ordering and arranging things. And second, he shall direct your paths. This isn't a generic one-size-fits-all. He knows each and every one of you. He knows all of your individual circumstances, and he'll direct your paths. He knows where you are. He knows what you're going through. He knows what he has destined you for. He knows how to order your life. And lastly, he'll direct your paths. Not just one thing, it's in the plural. Not just one time, but he promises to perform throughout the whole of the saving work in your life that he can do. He promises and performs this so that having walked, you can look back later and say, you did all things well. I have a friend, Chester Gretz, went to be with the Lord just a couple years ago. And Chet spent most of his life ministering behind the Iron Curtain when it wasn't safe to go behind the Iron Curtain. He held youth camps all over Soviet-dominated uh, uh, Belarus, uh, uh, Russia, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, uh, all over the place. This was before the wall fell. And uh, Chet spent over 50 years on the mission field doing that. His wife... Uh, working and helping support him and they, they lived overseas and they raised four kids and did great stuff and he finally retired from the mission field. He was about 80. And they got home and they weren't home a month. And his wife was driving to work that morning. She had a brain aneurysm and was dead before the car crashed. I went to the funeral and there was Chet, sweet as he always was, just a wonderful man of God, gentle. Um, he was known all over uh, Western Europe as, uh, or Eastern Europe as Uncle Chet. And I went up and I put my arms around him. I said, Chet, I love you. And he grabbed me and he stepped back and he said, he does all things well. He does all things well. Less than a year later, Chet himself passed away from cancer. And the last time I saw him, he just looked up and smiled from his bed. He was on his way to see Jesus, the one who does all things well. Beloved, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. We can't process everything. We certainly can't process it from his point of view. We have to let him do that. We have to trust what he's given us and and live there. In all your ways... Acknowledge him. 
Bring him into every circumstance, every situation. Lay all of it before him, physical, emotional, uh, positional, you name it. And he shall direct your paths. It's an absolute. Father God, I thank you for your word.